There is no doubt from the evidence of his own diary that General Douglas Haig's plan for the Battle of the Somme in the summer of 1916 was intended to achieve a dramatic breakthrough on the very first day. His men would rampage through the successive lines of German defence. But they wouldn't stop there. They would storm on to the town of Bapaume, eight miles behind the lines, and not even stop there. Haig was instructing his cavalry to charge triumphantly into Douai, which was 70 miles behind German lines. He truly seemed to believe that victory in the war was within grasp. But Haig's plan was based on a fundamental failure to understand the nature of the task he faced. The ghastly record of British failure in 1915 had shown beyond any doubt that no attack could possibly make any progress at all without successful preparation by big artillery guns. High explosive artillery shells would have to destroy the heavy German guns and deep dugouts before anyone thought of climbing out of a trench, let alone riding 70 miles. And on the Somme, Haig had nowhere near enough artillery firepower to achieve more than a tiny advance along a limited front. Now, if you're saying, well, the generals had a tough job and were doing their best, give them a break, our answer is, if that was the best they could do, then they were the wrong generals. And if you reply, well, it's easy for you to say, <laughs> it's also easy for us to prove. All you have to do is to compare what the British army did on the Somme with what the French army did. <laughs> Hello, good to see you at the History Cafe. This is where we come to talk about historical stories everyone knows. We want to try out some new ideas. I'm Penelope Middlebow. And I'm John Roseback, and we're revisiting stories that have got stuck in our collective memory, but just don't look quite right to us. So get yourself a coffee, pull up a chair, and let's see what happens. We have argued that the British Army in the First World War suffered from such fundamental weaknesses that, well, given a commander-in-chief like Douglas Haig, carnage and tragedy was inevitably bound to follow. Above all, as we have seen in our previous discussions, it almost entirely lacked heavy artillery. And by the summer of 1916, many of its very few heavy guns were worn out, hopelessly inaccurate. The shells and fuses they were using were also faulty, badly chosen. Haig should have known that there was no way any large-scale attack could be contemplated, let alone some fantastic breakthrough to the towns beyond the German trenches. You can't defend Haig and the British generals by saying that they were doing as well as could have been expected. You only have to compare the British generals with the French generals. Immediately to the south of the British army on the Somme was the French Sixth Army. Now, British textbooks don't usually bother with the French, but let's take a moment to consider the French generals. The French Sixth Army was commanded in the summer of 1916 by Ferdinand Foch. So that's spelled F-O-C-H, but it's a Breton name, so it's pronounced Foch. And alongside him was Marie-Émile Fayol. Both of these men had been professors at the French Military Academy. For the Battle of the Somme, Foch demanded 330 tonnes of barbed wire and over 2 million sandbags. More important, he asked for 1,069 heavy guns, almost 2,000 lighter field guns and 5 million shells. 
Now, in the event, Foch could only get 528 heavy artillery guns. Actually, historians differ about the figures, not least because it depends on what you call a heavy gun. But we'll go with 528, which is a figure that comes from a historian called Elizabeth Greenhalge, and it's a bit on the low side of the sort of numbers you find, which actually makes the argument even stronger. Well, 528 guns was half the number that Foch had hoped for. So what did the two French professors do? Did they, like the British, put their trust in the moral superiority of their men? No, they didn't. Did they, like Douglas Haig, brush aside anyone who suggested being a little more cautious, saying they're just a fool and a coward? No. What Foch and Fayol did was carefully to trim their plans according to the number of big guns they had. Having observed the French successes and the British failures since 1914, Foch and Fayol only planned to attack as much of the German line as they had the guns to knock out. Let's say that again. They would only attack as much of the German lines as they calculated they had the guns to knock out. By the end of 1915, the French army commanders had adopted what has come to be known as the scientific method. Men couldn't break the trench system. They were too precious to be sent out against machine guns and shells. The key was the artillery. Like the Germans, as we saw in an earlier discussion, the French don't share the ingrained British fear and mistrust of thinking and ideas. French strategists worked things out, drew up documents with best practice and taught their officers how to do it. And the officers did it. In April 1916... Just before the battle, I mean, just before. Foch produced a large manual for the French army called La Bataille Offensive. The Offensive Battle. Offensive. It was, he stated simply and accurately, quotes, the artillery which alone is capable of destroying enemy defences. Well, the French artillery was not only in a much better mechanical condition than the British, but the gunners were by then being trained to fire with mathematical accuracy calculating for weather conditions, for the effect of sloping ground and a series of other factors. The stress was on precise observation and mathematics, using as few shells as possible. The French concentrated their artillery fire on putting the German big guns out of action. Now, these were often far back and hidden on the reverse slopes of hills, where they were impossible to see from the ground and very difficult to hit. But it was essential to destroy them or they'd simply wipe out any advancing infantry. So the French, who cared about saving lives, had also been ahead of everyone else with aviation, developing aerial spotting before the war. Most British pilots in 1914 were in fact flying French planes. Mm -hmm. Don't read that in Biggles books, do you? Does anybody read Biggles anymore? I never did. Fantastic things. The French tactic was to attack only along a front and only to a depth for which they had enough guns to guarantee destruction of the German defences. So the heavy French guns would bombard the German positions for as long as it took to render them harmless. Once a senior officer had satisfied himself it was safe, then, and only then, would the infantry follow up in as small numbers as possible. Now, of course, all this made complete common sense. If, as the British General Haig later claimed to be doing, you were engaged in a war of attrition a numbers game to exhaust the enemy before he exhausted you, then you should do everything in your power to prevent your own men being killed. Foch defined what he called, quotes, the artillery preparation before an attack as, quotes, the definitive measure of infantry possibilities. Fantastic French phrase, isn't it? Much better in French, I'm sure. 
In other words, your infantry's objectives have to be measured by what your artillery could thoroughly shell. In practice, that meant making a series of short, well-prepared advances of not more than two, three, four kilometers, bringing your heavy guns forward after each stage. This was the French tactic on the Somme, and this would remain the French tactic until the end of the war. So they'd learnt all this during the war? Yes, the point was that the French had lost hundreds of thousands of men in 1915, but then, unlike the British, stopped to consider what they were doing, reconsider it all, and hence Foch had written his Bataille Offensive, offensive battle in early 1916, to work out a better way of doing it. Because, of course, the French the Germans are thinkers, unlike the British. On the Somme, professors Foch and Fayol calculated that given the number of big guns they had, well, let's take that number, the 528 number, they could only attack along a nine-mile front. That would give them one heavy gun for every 30 metres or so. They also calculated they could, before the battle started, only successfully shell as far back as the first German line, with just some initial targeting of the second. That was besides, of course, putting the German heavy artillery located even further back, you know, the big guns on the other sides of the hills that they couldn't see, out of action. So their attack on the Somme would begin with a series of short, well-prepared advances by the infantry only as far as the first German line, thereby keeping casualties to a minimum. Well, the French looked across and could not believe what was going on, meanwhile, at Haig's headquarters. Fayol caught it infantile. We might call it murderous. Criminal. At the Battle of the Somme, the French were engaged immediately to the south of the British line. As they planned their attack, the French commanders, professors Foch and Fayol, did a simple back-of-a-fag packet calculation. Based on everything the French had learned in the war so far, they set down the number of heavy artillery guns, big guns that they could get, 528 we'll say, and multiplied that by the number of metres, which from experience, a big gun could effectively shell. Well, the answer to that was about... 30 metres, so long as you didn't go trying to bombard the Germans beyond the first line or two. OK, so do the math and you end up with a front of nearly 16 kilometres, about nine miles. So that was going to be the length of front that Foch and Fayol would attack. In fact, they actually attacked slightly less than that. And they would only try to attack one line or at best two of the German positions at any one time before consolidating and moving their big guns up to catch up. Some historians say, of course, that the French had far more big guns on the Somme. Well, if that's right, then they had even more big guns per metre. Because they still only attacked over just under nine yeah. miles. So in other words, they were being even more cautious about how much they could attack. So the contrast with Haig is even more extraordinary. In fact, the French were dumbfounded at what was going on in Haig's headquarters. Fayol called it infantile. 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 <laughs> What, in fact, the historian William Philpott tells us is that the French commander-in-chief, General Joseph Joffre, was getting secret messages from his liaison officer at Haig's headquarters. And what extraordinarily they revealed was that the British commander was so puffed up with ambition and fantastical notions of what he was going to achieve that Joffre would have to let him imagine that he was planning for a complete and glorious 
breakthrough. Otherwise, the risk was that Haig would go into a sulk and wouldn't bother to attack properly at all. This liaison officer, Pierre de Valliere, who was in fact half Irish, wrote that Joffre must, quotes, insist on distant objectives if he wanted to be certain that the British would engage all their reserves. So unless they plan for a big breakthrough, they wouldn't. Haig wouldn't use all his soldiers. They'd be a bit half-hearted about it. They would be completely half-hearted about it. So Joffre dutifully wrote to Haig in grandiose terms, God, I mean, what were they thinking about the British? About, quotes, knocking out the German army on the Western Front. Let Haig imagine he was a modern-day Napoleon Bonaparte who was his hero. Yeah, Haig was happy to learn from long-dead French generals. It was just the modern ones he ignored. <laughs> That's very funny. <laughs> now, not all the British generals were as blind to the facts of modern warfare as Douglas Haig. The British commander on the ground, General Rawlinson, who was in charge of the 4th British Army, repeatedly told Haig he must make short, well-prepared advances on a 10-mile front, one German line at a time, very much like the French. Rawlinson, in fact, called it bite and hold. Now, given the number and the state of the British heavy artillery guns, even Rawlinson's calculations were a bit optimistic. But the historian Elaine McFarlane tells us that Rawlinson had, quote, methodically calibrated his targets to allow for the number of heavy howitzers, heavy guns available. So Rawlinson, in other words, had at least tried to do his artillery sums as carefully as the French had. And Rawlinson was loudly backed up by Lieutenant General Sir Aylmer Hunter Weston, who was commander of the 8th Corps at the northern end of the line. Well, we hear from him again. He had seen the effect of heavy artillery in Gallipoli. But each time Rawlinson put forward his recommendation to Haig, Haig tore it up. And he told Hunter Weston that Gallipoli was irrelevant. He should stop being so unambitious. When the attack starts, it must be pushed to the final objective with as little delay as possible, at one single effort. Haig thought that he was planning... An unlimited offensive. An unlimited offensive. Which meant that there would be no contingency planning for evasive action in the case of setback, nor for any preliminary probing attacks to test the strength of the enemy. But these were basic techniques taught at Staff College, and Haig proposed to ignore them. This was going to be all or nothing on the first day. Well, there was nothing that Rawlinson, Hunter Weston or anyone else could do. Haig had covered up for Rawlinson during an inquiry into the failures of 1915, and Rawlinson owed his continued career to him. Politics. Hunter Weston, well, he was a mere lieutenant general. The new artillery commander, Noel Curley Birch, who was in fact a friend of Haig's and Haig had appointed him, he told his commander-in-chief that if he tried to advance across the entire 16 miles he'd identified with the artillery in its present ramshackle state, he would only have an effective heavy gun every 92 yards. So that's like a third of the French capability and the French guns were in much better condition. Yeah, but then Birch was just a brigadier general. Haig dismissed his calculations as, quotes, immaterial. But just do the maths. Haig only had 227 effective big guns. Well, at the French rate of one gun per 30 metres... Or 30 yards, I suppose, in British terms. He should have worked out that an effective attack was possible only on a front of... Well, let's work it out. Uh, fag packet here, calculation. Less than four miles. <laughs> 
and only attacking as far as... It's the first German line, yeah. Mm-hmm. But Haig had failed the maths exam in the entrance paper for the British Officer Training Academy, Sandhurst, and had only got in after some string-pulling by his well-placed friends. Perhaps including the king. He later, by the way, campaigned to get the maths test removed from the entrance procedure. Anyway, now, faced with the dire shortage of British heavy guns on the Somme, he commanded his artillery not to shell a front of four miles, but of 16, and, even more fantastically, to bombard it all the way back to the third German line. Well, no wonder the French general called it infantile. Haig was presenting the ramshackle British artillery with the task of shelling, well, it works out as... 70 square miles of German defences. Something, in fact, over 100 miles of German trenches, dugouts, artillery and machine gun emplacement. It works out, in fact, when you do the sums, it works out as well, less than 10% of the concentration of artillery fire proposed by the French. Indeed, it's less than the artillery capability that the British had used in their disastrous attacks in 1915. Yeah, 1915. And see what had happened then. Well, one historian, Gary Mead, reckons that the British scarcely had enough guns to bite and hold the front German line. In fact, on the French calculation, they scarcely had enough guns to bite and hold the French German line for four miles, let alone 16. Yet right to the final day before the attack, Haig was actually reducing the amount of shelling he allowed Rawlinson and the artillery to do. So let's not be in any doubt, Haig's plan made absolutely no military sense whatever. We've seen in our previous discussions that it is impossible to maintain that Haig intended anything other than a complete breakthrough on the Somme. But even if we believe, as Haig later claimed, and some historians still accept, that his objectives were just to wear down the German army a little and relieve the French, these could have been achieved with limited, well-prepared economical attacks on small sections a line at a time. They could and should have been properly calculated according to the number of big guns that were available it would have kept British casualties to a minimum. The problem was, Haig seems to believe that even if they had too few guns, which he admitted, they could obliterate the Germans anyway if they fired enough shells at them. But as we've seen, two-thirds of the British shells were shrapnel, which is effective against cavalry or infantry out in the open, but useless for destroying deep German dugouts. The British only had about half a million of the high-explosive shells that they needed to destroy the German dugouts and artillery. So get your fag packet out again and again. you work out that that meant that the British were lobbing over about, well, 20 high-explosive shells for each area, well, the size of a foot-big foot pitch like Wembley Stadium. If you factor in then that up to a third of those shells would be duds and bring to mind that the British guns were old and horribly inaccurate, they had a hit rate of about 1%. Some of them missed by a mile. Remember that they didn't have the right fuses to reach the underground dugouts. Even their shrapnel shells had the wrong fuses for cutting the wire. And, well, there is only one possible, possible calculation. <laughs> Haig had calculated his plan on the basis of using up men not on the capability of the machines that were available. He would be forcing more than 100,000 unprotected human beings into a wholly predictable storm of enemy machine gun fire, heavy explosive and shrapnel. It was an act of quite breathtaking barbarity in the face of all the available evidence and the accumulated experience of nearly two years of warfare and the advice of some, at least, of his senior officers. 
neither the French nor the Germans would ever have contemplated doing such a thing. So we have to agree that this wasn't just the British officers doing the best they could under difficult circumstances. The British commanding officers had every reason under the sun to have known better. After all, the French next door to them did. There is only one way to put it. What Haig committed on the Somme was a war crime against his own army. On the 24th of June 1916, the British artillery opened up and began their hopeless task of preparing for the infantry assault. For five out of the six following days, the weather was too poor for planes to fly and the gunners had to work without even aerial spotting. It would be pure luck if they hit anything at all. Well, the Germans were ready. For months, they'd watched British and French preparations just a few hundred metres away. Raiding parties had captured British soldiers and questioned them for information. The Germans had a system called Moritz that was a listening system that was able to pick up British phone conversations electronically through the ground at 3,000 yards. That's about a mile and three quarters. On the 23rd of June, one German wit put up a large notice for the British to read. We know you're going to attack. Kitchener is done. Asquith, that's the British Prime Minister, is done. You're done. We're done. In fact, we're all done. On the 29th of June, the weather was too poor to attack and the plan was put back for two days. But the artillery ammunition had been calculated for only six days of bombardment. So the rate of fire now slackened off and that meant that the Germans were able to get out and mend their parapets and barbed wire. Many books still say the generals sincerely believed that by the end of six days of shelling, the Germans were all dead. Haig, after all, had told his infantry that the bombardment would be methodical and that it would continue, quotes, until the officers commanding the attacking units are satisfied the obstacles to their advance have been adequately destroyed, end quote. But when reports came back during the bombardment that it was not being effective, Haig dismissed them as Windiness. Yeah, that's a word my grandfather used to use. Windy means cowardly. But the British raiding parties that went across at night knew what they had seen. Three of the five army corps engaged in the battle reported the British shells were not cutting the German barbed wire. German trenches were still heavily manned. Intelligence just before the attack reported dugouts are still good. The men appear to remain in these dugouts all the time and are completely sheltered. British raiding parties seized German prisoners, who were then interrogated, and they told wildly differing stories. Some claimed that their companies had suffered heavy casualties and that their trenches and barbed wire were in a bad way. But others told a very different tale. One German prisoner explained his unit had lost only three men. They'd continued building their dugouts and repairing the barbed wire throughout the British bombardment. Well, the fact was that it didn't take a military strategist or a French professor to work out the reality of what was going on. Percy Jones was a rifleman facing Goncourt at the very northern end of the line. He wrote in his diary on the 26th of June, as the British bombardment had thundered on, General Snow and his staff are busy telling us that we shall have practically no casualties, because all the Germans will have been killed by our artillery barrage. It's nothing like the truth. Fact is, this attack is based entirely on the supposition there will be no Germans left alive to oppose us. We know, however, that the Germans have dugouts 40 feet deep, and I don't see how the stiffest bombardment is going to kill them off. Nor do I see how the whole of the enemy's artillery is going to be silenced. 
Now, we don't know if Private Jones was Welsh, but he was called Jones. Private Jones had got it exactly correct. This attack is based entirely on the supposition that there will be no Germans left alive to oppose us. But that couldn't possibly be true. In fact, by the time they launched the infantry attack, 246 German field guns and 598 big guns were still in action. Well, that was more than twice as many as the British had even begun with. Four days later, back at British General HQ, Rawlinson wrote in his diary, I'm not quite satisfied that all the wire has been thoroughly well cut, and in places the front trench is not as much knocked about as I should like to see it in the photos. It was now just hours before the attack. Ah, yes, the photos. In 2006, Peter Barton published a book in collaboration with the Imperial War Museum that completely changes our way of understanding the Battle of the Somme. One of the many remarkable things in the book are the photographs. Some are during the action on the 1st of July, the first day. You can see tiny figures making their way towards the chalky spoil from the German trenches. Some are panoramas of the battlefield taken in the months before. Some are taken from aircraft. In the private diary of General Sir Elmer Hunter Weston, corps commander you remember at the northern end of the line, photographs have been pasted in and labelled, quote, taken of battle on the 1st of July 1916. They too clearly show the German front lines and the men going forward. Well, what all this tells us is that it was perfectly possible to see a good deal of the German defences from the British lines or from above in a plane or an observation balloon. With a camera or with binoculars, the state of the wire and the trenches were perfectly visible. Although the weather had been poor during the bombardment, there had been a couple of windows and pauses in the shelling for the planes to take photographs. So the conclusion is perfectly plain. Nobody anywhere near the front line on the 1st of July 1916 could possibly have avoided the obvious fact that the British bombardment had been, as had been entirely predictable, largely useless. All that arguing over recent weeks over exactly how many minutes they would spend capturing this orchard or that barn, thousands of yards behind the German front lines, was completely unreal. They were never going to get anywhere close to their objectives. But of course the generals were nowhere near the front line. On the morning of the 1st of July, General Hunter Weston was actually posing for a press photograph with his senior officers 10 miles away at his HQ in the fine 18th century chateau of Marieux. And Haig, according to his handwritten diary, was even further away and nowhere near enough to see the front line, even through a pair of binoculars. He was apparently unaware of any or much of what was happening. On the 28th of June, he had written to King George V, his friend, quote, Everywhere I found the troops in great spirits and full of confidence of their ability to smash the enemy. Several officers have said they have never known troops in such enthusiastic spirits. Haig then added, bizarrely, We must, I think, in fairness, give a good deal of credit for this to the Parsons. Parsons? The Parsons? The whole notion that the army chaplains, who on the whole were not having a good war, had fired the men up for the attack, suggests that Haig truly was losing touch with reality. It was anyway a cruel delusion to suggest that the men's spirits had anything to do with the final result. That would be governed by shells and machine guns. More to the point, on the 29th of June, Haig had motored around behind the lines and recorded in his diary various generals who reported that the bombardment was going terribly well and the German wire was being very well cut. Haig just didn't seem to hear bad news, or maybe everyone was too afraid to tell him, or maybe he just didn't ever write it down. 
One man who perhaps could stand up to him was his friend Curly Birch, whom he'd appointed in command of British artillery. Curly Birch had been with the four divisions at the very northern end of the line. Haig doesn't write in his diary exactly what Birch said, but it was clearly not what he wanted to hear. Haig brushed off the problem that Curly Birch had brought him. Oh, those soldiers at the northern end of the line, they're all a bunch of amateurs. But which, of course, Haig meant, as we shall see, useless volunteers with no proper army experience. Some of them, spluttered Haig, thought they knew better just because they, they well, they fought at Gallipoli. They well, actually fought. Well, a dose of proper Western Front discipline would soon sort them out. Well, the next day, the day before the attack, Haig had gone towards the southern end of the line. 15 Corps reported the wire was very well cut. Well, perhaps it was no surprise the artillery there had used twice as many shells as they were supposed to. It doesn't appear that Haig went on to visit 13 Corps at the very southern end of the British line. Well, he might have bumped into the French who were alongside and who would have given him a very frosty reception. He would also have bumped into British commanders who, as we shall see, disagreed deeply with what he was doing. That night, Haig wrote to his wife, I feel that everything possible for us to do to achieve success has been done. They were the words of a pious but deeply limited man who'd closed his ears to what better people around him were saying. Early on the 1st of July, the Germans, safe underground in their dugouts, intercepted messages that the attack was about to begin. They stood by to come out and man their machine guns as soon as the shelling lifted. The British Army were profoundly ill-prepared for the Battle of the Somme. The plan General Haig had imposed on his commanders ignored his almost complete lack of heavy artillery. It was a basic error, and his battle plan a far-fetched, utterly impractical piece of vanity. What happened on the morning of the 1st of July 1916 was completely predictable. Well, we're used to the well-told story that shelling went on all night until at 7.30 on the 1st of July, the British artillery fell silent. You know, the story's bird song is then heard, and then the whistles blow, and the men climb out of their trenches and begin to walk in ragged lines towards what they've been told were empty German trenches. The reality, of course, was very different. At dawn, planes had been flying along the German lines, assessing the state of their remaining defences. They could see that the German lines and artillery batteries were very largely still intact. At 6.25, the artillery stepped up to a new ferocity. At the northern end of the line, men were being served a cold bacon sandwich and, if they were lucky, a hot cup of tea. In the middle of the line, they were given a tot of rum. One man in this section of the line shot himself in the knee. I should say at least one man. At 7am, trench mortars, portable guns firing small shells, opened up towards the strongly held Schwaben Redoubt, a fortified gun emplacement on the German lines towards the north end of the line. Nearby, the Ulstermen of the Royal Enniskanen Fusiliers crept out and near to the German line. Before the war, they'd been paramilitaries in the Loyalist UVF, and the 1st of July was the anniversary of the Battle of the Boyne. Some accounts are that they were wearing their orange order sashes and were, uh, shall we say, up for the fight. All along the line, other groups of soldiers were making their way into hiding places out in no man's land. Some went through tunnels that had been dug with explosive charges set to go off and open the tunnel right in front of the German front line. At 7.20, a huge mine, an underground bomb, was detonated north of the Schwaben Redoubt at Hawthorne Ridge. 
British soldiers then rushed forward and occupied the crater and there was fighting for the surrounding German trenches and dugouts. Between the Hawthorne Ridge and the Schwaben Redoubt, more parties of British soldiers had crept through a tunnel into no man's land and were hiding in a sunken road opposite the village of Beaumont Amel. Somewhere here, the one and only film cameraman was trying to get some footage. Meanwhile, up and down the line, shrapnel shells and trench mortars were raining down on German positions, one every other second. At 7.28, two more huge mines went off at La Boiselle in the middle of the front, rocking a plane 4,000 feet above. As the spoil was still raining down, witnesses record whistles at 7.30, and then, indeed, a brief silence. Well, it must have been very brief, just time for the artillery to re-register and aim all its fire on the German front line. A minute or so later, as men made their way out from the trenches and hiding places, the artillery would lift its fire and re-register further away. Now was the moment for the men to occupy the German trenches. But by then, they were floundering in the coils of uncut German wire, with heavy German shells falling all around them and the machine guns opening up. The carnage had begun. But let's begin at the very southern end of the British line, because here is a story you are never told. You don't find it in any army accounts or in more than a few British textbooks. No students in British schools ever get to hear it. Adjoining the southern end of the British line, the French 6th Army launched its own attack that morning. It was commanded, you recall, by two artillerymen, Ferdinand Foch and Marie-Emile Fayol. Both had been professors at the École Supérieure de Guerre. Foch would later be remembered as, quote, the most original military thinker in his generation. You recall that Generals Foch and Fayol had far more big guns than the British and that their guns were in much better condition. Their gunners were trained in scientific calculation of the weather and precise registration or aiming at their targets. They also had excellent information on their targets. French spotter aeroplanes had flown so low over the enemy trenches the Germans could see the French pilots' faces. They destroyed the Germans' observation balloons, but the Germans could see nearly 100 French observation balloons, giving the French artillery pinpoint information on German positions. Historian Jack Sheldon, using evidence from the German army, describes the French artillery as, quote, devastatingly accurate. Even so, the French calculated that they could only achieve success over a much shorter front than the British, and only as far as the German front line of trenches. So most of their objectives on that opening day were along that first line of German defences. If all went well, they planned to move forward carefully day after day, digging in each time and moving their big guns up. This intense French bombardment has successfully taken out many of the German machine guns, field guns and mortars. Understanding the German artillery spotter network as they did, they toppled church towers, factory chimneys and anywhere else the Germans could use as viewing posts. The French guns also targeted the heavy German artillery way back beyond the front line, often on the reverse of hillsides, knowing that these unseen guns would play havoc with any advance. Using German war diaries, Sheldon reveals the French attack in stark colours. When on the 30th of June some German artillery batteries had dared to fire back, they'd received 2,000 heavy calibre <laughs> shells in return. One battery in the park of a chateau to the south of the French lines at Deniercourt was hit by 15,000 rounds. Now, that was roughly a thousand times what the British could have managed. This was what the French called the scientific method in action. Such was the intensity of the French shelling, the Germans had been forced to evacuate the civilians from the French villages they'd occupied and were now ablaze. 
One German, Weisverweber Weichel, recorded the scenes at Montauban. Quote, Some had put on their best clothes, whilst others were clutching in small bundles the items they wished to save. Even the civilians knew it would be all over after this. Crucially, the French bombardment was so heavy that it became impossible for the Germans to bring up any reinforcements, or even to move around behind their own lines. German war diaries reported stumbling in the dark, unable to find the positions they were supposed to take up. On the front line, the German dugouts had been destroyed and they could get no materials to mend them since their communication trenches had also disappeared. In fact, they hadn't been able to get food and they'd been eating their emergency rations. Some reported having nothing left except mugs of coffee. Others sheltered in the tunnels they'd been digging under no man's land towards the French lines. Using sharp-edged shrapnel, the French guns had shredded the German barbed wire. On the 27th and 28th of June, the French had launched probing attacks to test the remaining German defences. It was, you recall, British Army training to do this. But it was the French who did it. At five o'clock in the morning of the 1st of July, along the French line, masses were being said. Ahead of the attack, the French then released gas and fired gas shells at what was left of the German artillery. The French infantry set off in small parties between 7.30 and 9.30 in the morning, a few singing the Marseillaise. French planes circled overhead. Hardly any of the German machine guns and their crews were still in action. At 9am, three underground bombs were set off, crushing many of the Germans who were now hiding in their own tunnels. Many Germans found that even their communication trenches leading back to safety had been obliterated. By 11 o'clock, the remaining German artillery had almost completely stopped firing. And when a gun did open up, it was rapidly knocked out by French guns in return. Now, this terrain was not easy for the attackers. At Menuisier Trench, a nest of German machine guns had been hiding in a low wood known as Bois Y. Why wood? The main German line was on a hill 200 yards further on and the artillery hidden behind it. But the French infantry had dug saps, tunnels, almost up to the German positions and now sprang out of them. They found almost all the guns of Bois Y had been destroyed by their artillery bombardment. The German artillery, despite being hidden awkwardly behind the slope, was now also virtually silent. By mid-morning, the French were up the slope and had taken the main German position. It had gone like clockwork. German prisoners were trooping across to the French lines. That day, the first day of the Battle of the Somme, the French 6th Army captured all of its objectives, many of them within an hour. More and more targets continued to fall through the day. Assevilly around 4 o'clock, Ibecourt at 5.30. A few Germans fought on amid the complete wreckage of their defences and Assevilly was retaken. But the Germans' main focus was now to throw together some kind of resistance on their second line of trenches, using whoever was left in the ruins of the villages. It was very difficult because many of their positions in the rear were enveloped in gas for much of the day. The French army advanced two kilometres. In places, it pressed on past the hastily garrisoned second German trench and the third where there was one. In some places, the French reached open country. Wasn't that what Haig had been after? And there, the Germans were loading wagons and fleeing, pulling out their heavy guns. Accurate French shelling went on to 8 o'clock in the evening and then to 9.30, when an ammunition dump near Estre was blown up. The French had lost comparatively few men, about 1,500. The next day, the French would go on cutting the wire and destroying strong points, still moving forward. Assevier was finally retaken early on the 3rd of July. 
The French 6th Army had conducted a textbook operation of break-in and consolidation, which is what the British called bite and hold. The official British history of the battle devotes six chapters to the 1st of July 1916, but gives the French army a single page. Some modern British historians have also been inclined to dismiss the French success, saying well, the Germans hadn't expected the French to attack and had brought out few reserves. Well, they say the German artillery was less dense in this part of the line and well, the trench system was less developed. But if the French had successfully concealed their plans from the Germans, then that too was a military achievement. And if the Germans were unable to bring in reserves, this too was in part a French success. And of course, above all, the French had calculated their frontage according to what their guns could achieve. If the German trench system was more elaborate further up in the British sector and the German artillery heavier there, then the British front should have been shorter. Get your fag packet out. The sums aren't difficult. Or not for men like General Foch, described by one British commander, Ivor Maxey, who we'll soon in fact see in action, as, quote, a man with brains, essentially. The brilliant success of the French operation on the Somme and above all the comparatively few casualties they suffered plainly demonstrates for all to see how the war on the Western Front could and should have been conducted. In the light of the French success on the 1st of July 1916, it's not possible any longer to maintain that the British commander-in-chief, Douglas Haig, was just doing a difficult job to the best of his abilities and that that was good enough. Over the course of the war, Haig's foolish and stubborn approach would cost hundreds of thousands of men their lives, stealing fathers from children, husbands from wives, sons from parents and friends from those who loved them. Trench warfare was not a mystery. It just demanded men who understood modern weaponry and could do their sums. Haig's criminal incompetence is made all the more obvious when you discover that even some of his own generals were sufficiently enlightened to learn from the French and do things differently. The story of what happened to them on the Somme is also a story that is rarely told in British textbooks. But it should certainly be heard now, as we shall discover next time at the History Café. For more on this story and others at our History Café, go to historycafe.org. There you'll find information about us and also about further reading you can do. It's also a way to ask us any questions you might have. Or you can contact us on social media at History Café Pod. And don't forget that it's easy to listen to a whole series. You just use the playlist you can find on SoundCloud and Spotify. There are 60 episodes and building. <laughs>